Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 19th, 2022. Um, as always, talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Supposed to be the city of creativity. I'm not sure how actually creative it is. We're going to be talking about creativity today. Uh, yesterday, I thought we did a really interesting show with another Bay Area writer, thinker, although now he's in Nevada, Stephen Kotler. Um, he's a very creative writer, thinker. He's imagining a future in which we kind of escape ourselves and are able to empathize with trees and other creatures. We can kind of escape our humanity. What's interesting about Kotler is that his new book, which came out yesterday, The Devil's Dictionary, is um, a novel, but he's best known as a writer on the future, non-fictional writer on the future, books like Abundance and Bold and Tomorrowland. So he himself, I think, manifests that ability to cross genres, boundaries, and write with a great deal of creativity, both in the non-fiction and fictional space. Uh, my guest today is similar, I think, to Kotler. Uh, he's been on the show before. Matt Rittell, many of you will know him as um, a science and tech writer for the New York Times. He's won Pulitzer Prizes. He has a new book out, uh, Inspired Understanding Creativity. Um, but Matt is also well known uh, as a novelist. So he crosses genres. Uh, he's someone just as comfortable in mainstream journalism, tech, uh, science, fiction, nonfiction, and now he's writing about the Uber category, creativity, and he's joining us from San Francisco today. Matt, welcome. Andrew. Congratulations on the new book. It's just out today, right? This is it. You, you're, you are my inaugural uh, conversation. Wow. Well, after me, it's all downhill, Matt. You know that. It's going to be, it's going to be, yeah, like, you know, fresh air, uh, <laughs> CNN. Who are these people? Exactly. Well, uh, I don't want to say anything publicly about Terry Gross, but uh, I feel like I've been listening to her all my life, which is about 80 years. Matt, why the book on creativity? You, As I said at the beginning, you are a creative guy. You, you're just as comfortable writing fiction as nonfiction, journalism, tech, science. What led you to a book about creativity itself? Yeah, what led me to a book about creativity was a feeling. And um, Andrew, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you if the feeling resonates with you or if you've had it. Do you know that feeling when you have an idea and you would run through a brick wall to get it done? You feel like it must exist. Does that feeling resonate? Well, I think it's um, the way I think about that is that it it it, conf it confirms the nature of things. So when you talk about running through a brick wall, what it means is that you, you've stumbled on something which is true, which you didn't know before. I'm not sure if that's creativity or truth or maybe somewhere in between. Well, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lovely way of putting it. And I'm going to eventually get to the biology of that. But the feeling I'm describing is the one many, many people have experienced and many others would like to experience where you come up with an idea. It's an idea for a business. 
for a song, for um, a solution. And you are so certain that that is the right way to spend your time that it feels like a kind of euphoria, an impulse so strong you must follow it. And Andrew, over the years, I have experienced this in a variety of ways. I've talked to other creators who have experienced this. And fundamentally, I wanted to understand this impulse, understand how fundamental it is to us. Is it biological? Did it come from outer space? Where do these ideas generate and how do they become the essence of creativity? And that's what drove what ultimately became a pretty sweeping look at creativity. It's interesting. You had a, um, a piece this morning, uh, actually a couple of days ago in the Times, uh, we have a creativity problem. And you suggest that the researchers um, argue that we don't really want to be creative. So is this a dangerous idea? Does it wipe us out? Is it scary? Yeah. So, so let me take a giant step back. Let's just first start with what creativity is. In the broadest sense, creativity is a novel idea that has impact. It doesn't have to have the impact of changing the world. Many creations are small that become the building blocks for something much bigger. Creativity, if, if it is that, we often say when asked how we feel about creativity, we love it. Who doesn't want to be creative? Who doesn't want to hire a creative person? Who doesn't want to try something new and inspirational? What was interesting about this study, and I begin the book with it, or near the front of the book, I, be, I address it, is that while we say we love creativity, we actually secretly harbor real concerns about it. And the way that study got done is the way that we do subconscious bias research on race. You know these studies, Andrew, where they say, you say, oh, I see all people as the same. And then they go and look at how you subconsciously feel about someone of a different skin color, ethnicity. Are you familiar with that general area of science? I'm not familiar with the science, but I've heard it a million times. From You've heard it a million times. Yeah. So it's subconscious bias research. It turns out we harbor a deep subconscious bias against creativity. When you do this research and you ask someone, how do you feel about creativity? Explicitly, they say, love it. Implicitly, they associate creativity with toxins and poison and vomit. I just want to ask you, why do you think that might be? Well, I should be the one asking you, but my guess. <laughs> I was I mean, trying to get, I was trying to, to get. Some you're you're asking me generically. We are, you're asking the audience. The audience can't speak. So I'm going to speak on behalf yes. of the audience. Um, well, given that we're both talking in San Francisco, the, the capital, the self-proclaimed capital of disruption, my guess is that it's deeply disruptive. It turns everything upside down. And most of us don't want to have our lives, our minds, our relationships, our sense of ourselves turned upside down. We prefer the familiar. It is, it is one of the most basic tensions in the human condition that we crave progress and novelty, and yet we resist the changing of the status quo. And it is hard to point 
to a major innovation that is not insanely destructive in a certain respect. And I'll just point to one that we think about a lot these days, the Tesla, Elon Musk, marvelous in so many ways, especially when it self parks. Have um, you got one, by the way? I Everyone do. in San Francisco has one, don't they? We do. We, we leased one. Um, it's been... What do you mean, we? We, the royal family? We, the royal me and the wife. You do, are you thinking I would I would make a decision without the missus? Uh, well, I don't know your missus, but I'm guessing you, you're <laughs> very respectful towards her. I am, I am deeply... Uh, I, in fact, if you buy this book, your marriage will become instantly great. My uh, marriage or your marriage? All marriages. Okay, well, that's a good sales that. point. So... Um, so um, the, the, the thing is that, that as, as innovative as that is, if you play it out, it's destructive to petroleum-fueled car industry. You could even map it in a larger sense to destructive to jobs that are from other industries. It's marvelous. It's destructive. But I'll give you even a, a, a more um, kind of a less politicized example. Let's take the antibiotic. You can't make, you, you must make a case. It's one of the most marvelous medical discoveries of all time. And you just, uh, your previous book was An Elegant Defense, a book about uh, immunology and, and, and that sort of thing. About so you the know this stuff inside out. About the immune system. And, and um, you know, you look at what's happening now with antibiotics. Bacteria are fighting back and becoming resistant. These are, these are, this could ultimately, it is, it hasn't now, and I don't want to be a, a doomsayer. In fact, this book is, is quite optimistic and I'm generally pretty optimistic, but it, there's a case that you can, that can be made that we over many years, over epics will um, cause bacteria to become more powerful and more destructive because we have, they are evolving around the antibiotic. These are results we cannot predict from our creations. And so to square the circle and come back to the main point, on a visceral level, while we crave some aspects of creativity, we are petrified by the changing of the status quo either over a long term or just the mere need to adapt in the short term. I'm at the point, Andrew, where my kids have to configure my phone for me. I can no longer keep up with the rapidity of the changes. That's scary. To what extent, um, uh, Matt, is this book inspired understanding creativity, a narrative of your own struggles and challenges and inspiration with being inspired, being creative? You begin uh, the book in Jerusalem and you begin, you talked about Jobs earlier, you begin with a reference, as these books tend to do, to Steve Jobs, you're comparing Steve Jobs and King Herod. I'd never heard that comparison. I'd heard Jobs compared to many different people, but not to Herod. How, how do you begin in Jerusalem with Herod and Jobs? Yeah, well, I happened to be um, taking a tour of Jerusalem right as I was starting the beginning of this book. And the, and the, the tour guide said to me, King Herod was the Steve Jobs of his time. And I also had to make sense of that, but there was a way in which it was actually a, a really, really powerful example of several trends 
that I used to exploit to open up this book. First of all, Herod was well known at, at his time for building a city and was credited with a whole bunch of uh, creative uh, developments that ultimately were the function of not just his own vision. And by the way, he, I also note that he was Her Herod, the paranoid, vicious killer. He was hardly all good. Um, well, uh, Steve Jobs was hardly all good either, right? Yes, he had his issues, but I would not in that <laughs> respect lump him in with Herod. But but the, the, the misconception that a lot of people have about both of those men and more largely about people we remember is that the creations were theirs and theirs alone. And in point of fact, what was interesting about Jerusalem and is analogously interesting about Silicon Valley is that these were places very, very rich with creativity. It turns out when you have a population center filled with creative people, you wind up getting an enormous amount of collaboration, cooperation, and competition that leads to profound ideas. And one of the first misconceptions I raise in the book is that there are just these essential creative geniuses who fundamentally and singularly change the world. In fact, their work is built on a time and a place and on the shoulders of giants. And that's the respect in which I combine these two in the same thought. In Jerusalem in the year zero, there was a population of about 500,000. It doesn't sound like a lot, but in the scale of the times, it was huge. And Jerusalem was an industry town. Ultimately, the industry wasn't city building that Herod did. The industry was religion. And the most fundamental creation stories of all time came from that period. Over the history of, of the species, Jerusalem, Florence, periods in Russia, Harlem, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, go down the list, France, Britain, these population centers that became incredibly fecund for creativity. And that's the, that's the parallel there. But it, we've heard that before, Matt, you've heard it many times, this idea of the democratization of creativity, we all take credit. But your book also is a book about creative giants, you may deny the idea of being a creative giant, but you talk to Yo-Yo Ma. Yes. Um, in the book, uh, you you have lots of jokes about Bono, you eventually talk to him. So what are the role of the Yo-Yo Ma's and Bono's in inspiration in understanding creativity, if it comes collectively? Should we all take credit for Ma or Bono? Should all of Ireland stand I mean, up when Bono gets an award? I mean, look, um, um, first of all, just the, the, this story with of, of Bono that, uh, that I'll tell you really quickly sort of underscores the powerful nature and the passing nature of, of stardom, which should not be conflated with creativity. There is no doubt Bono is intensely creative. But as I start this book, I'm in the front yard. This is not in the, uh, this is not a foundational principle of the book. But as I was starting the book, I was in the front yard playing basketball with my son. And I say, uh, hey, Milo, uh, he's 11. I'm, I'm going to try to interview Bono for this book. And my son says, is Bono a him or a her? He, he's never heard of Bono. The reason I mention that story is not to diminish Bono in any way, but to keep in perspective 
the the way we view certain creators they become very large over a period of time but they are part of a scale of epics now i also don't want to diminish their contributions here's the thing the great creators that we remember and recognize seem to be able to consolidate ideas in a moment in time where there are fragments of creative pieces that they bring together into a whole Mm. Vitally, this is an issue that has to do not just with their own creative capacities, which are significant, but the ecosystem in which those capacities happen. And I'll tell you a story about Bono that underscores this. So in 2000, uh, U2 wins the Grammy for the song Beautiful Day, best song. And the next day, Bono goes to a hotel where he's meeting with Roger McNamee, some listeners may know Roger. He's yeah, a- Roger's been on the show and I was going to bring him up. You you cite him at the end of one of your inspirations. He's a not only a talented businessman, but a musician as well as a, a sort of a, a prescient futurist, a war, one of the great uh, written a, a number of books warning us of the dangers, particularly of Facebook. So. Yeah, and Roger's become a friend over the years. I've even played some music with him. And he he's not a great me, musician. He would acknowledge that, I think. Well, I he, he's better than I am. Yeah, he's better <laughs> than me, too. That's for sure. <laughs> but the bar is not especially high. Uh, but he so so Bono goes and meets with Roger and Roger doesn't know much about Bono at the time, but he's effusive. He says, congratulations, you've won the Grammy for best song. And Bono says to him, hey, listen, um, you know, we all get lauded. People love us. They think we're creative geniuses. It's a bunch of BS. He says, let me tell you what really happened. He says, for a long time, we were successful because our sound fit in the way music was listened to. We built, we built music to be listened to on an album as a long narrative that fit the way people listen to music in their cars and so forth. He said, And then we were at risk of becoming obsolete. And their 1997 album or thereabouts was called Pop. And it was a relative failure for them. And Bono says, we realized what had come in was the individual song and the subwoofer driving it. And we wrote an album and a song to to participate in the ecosystem as it had become. And that's what I'm going to credit our success to. Now, I personally think that album is phenomenal and would have been phenomenal one way or the other, but he credits matching their creativity to the way the world had worked. Will you permit, Andrew, if I can tie this to fundamental biology for a second? No, absolutely not. You will not permit that. No, I, I will permit it. Oh. I am allowing you to do anything you can, you want, especially uh, any, anything scientific, because that's your one area where you, you cross over from these studies of creativity into the hard sciences, which is very helpful, I think. So I, I, <laughs> I'm still stuck on no, absolutely not. Um, so, so Bono's. Well, you act, thought you were talking to your wife, didn't you? I did. I was going to figure. I was trying to figure out the segue there. I told you this book would solve all marriages except ours, Andrew. Um, so, so. Bono's actually in a section of this book that delves into the biology because I use his real world analogy 
to illustrate a point I make more earlier in this, this same section of the book about the biological underpinnings of creativity, in which I talked to both biologists and one of my favorite people that I got to interview in this book, Richard Dawkins, the famed evolutionary biologist who, who wrote A Selfish Gene. And I'm in the lab watching a biologist use bacteria to explain how creativity works on a biological level. And what this guy does in Switzerland is he puts, he puts antibiotics, he puts antibiotics into a vial with bacteria and he watches the bacteria get murdered, get annihilated. Hellfire rains down on them, except for every once in a while, a bacteria crushed with this antibiotic is in the process of reproducing and comes up with a random mutation that allows it to evade a back, uh, antibiotic and it survives. This is the essence of creativity on its most primitive level. It goes like this. We are faced with destructive forces outside of ourselves. And on the biological level, on the subconscious level of the organism that has no brain, so conscious isn't even the right word to use, random mutations come up, evade that threat, and go on to become the organism that thrives. If you think about this over evolution and time, bit by bit, an organism developed the genetics that became, or the genes that became the nub, that became the wing, that became the bird that was able to fly, that could find food in the trees. That is survival pressure that leads to change, that leads to progress. In the human mind, the analog to that is that there is survival pressure on all of us and ideas begin to crop up in our subconscious that are in effect the analog of random mutations, they are random bits of ideas that begin to consolidate into ideas that we run over the analytical parts of our brain that we test against reality and that become the ideas that stick, that develop into progress. That is not, fun, that is not human alone. The distinction is that we can drive it as humans. So two things are true. This is in us. It's primitive. It's essential to survival and human and, and organisms, but that humans can control it much more than other organisms. But sometimes it's not the organisms controlling us, it's us controlling the organisms. You have the example of Bono in the book, who's a, who's a product of other forces that he can't control, although he or McNamee are smart enough to understand that. I, 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 I'm not actually surprised with what you say about Bono. I never thought of him as a particularly talented artist. He's a talented personality and self-promoter. Uh, but you also have another figure in the book who seems to master all that. You, 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 you begin with some reference to a hard rains are going to fall, the, uh, the 1963 uh, Bob Dylan song. And then you fast forward to a song 50 years later, I Contain Multitudes, uh, one of his best songs on his latest 2020 masterpiece, Rough and Rowdy Ways. I was just in New Orleans uh, at a concert uh, on that tour. Um, what is it about Dylan, do you think, that allows him to master the forces that 
turned Bono into a footnote. We're the footnote to Dylan, aren't we? All of yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in many ways you, you, you can't overstate the creative moment that he is, that he defined. Um, there are some categories for creativity, small C, you know, big C, pro C, um, and, and they refer to how big of an impact a creation is. I think you can make a pretty good case that Dylan is one of the handful of names that will be remembered over epics in the music space. Really, really remembered. Why is that? Well, unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to to interview Dylan, but I did study a bunch about him. Through he wouldn't talk to you. I, I didn't ask, to be honest, because I had no. You know what occurs him. to me is that he conforms to your idea of putting pieces together, except it's all done within his framework. You cite this wonderful song um, from the latest album, I Contain Multitudes, and you, you, you quote my favorite line, I'm just like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones, and then British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I go right to the edge, I go right to the end, I go right where all things lost and made good again. There's lots of allusions, of course, to American literature in that about containing multitudes. But what Dylan has always been able to do, it seems to me, is bring all that stuff together in ways that none of us would have expected. Who would ever have imagined him to write a song in which he mentioned Anne Frank, Indiana Jones, and the Rolling Stones in a single line and get away with it? Can I explain why that's so vital? Um, it's so vital because one of the things that great creators seem to have, or just creators in general, and here, you know, this spans a bunch of interesting people I talk to, is they're willing to own their multitudes. Now, what do I mean by that? All of us have multitudes inside of us. Many of us seek to package ourselves in very clear and explicit and clean ways. And we have some fear about showing all the parts of ourselves to the world or many of the parts to the world, or even Andrew, allowing ourselves to think about all those parts. The reason someone like Dylan can do what he does is he accepts all that in himself and shares much of, us, much of it with us. If you fail to see in yourself or allow yourself to feel all the different emotions and personalities and versions of yourself, you're essentially leaving creative material on the cutting room floor. And I'd like to cite a piece of science here. So we all contain multitudes. Some of us are able to see them more than others. And some of us actually are able to physically see more than others. I think one of my favorite bits of science in this entire book was done out of the University of California at Santa Barbara, where they took some study subjects and they ranked them based on their creative nature. And there's a whole bunch of tests you can do to see how creative someone is, how many ideas somebody comes up with uh, out of a basic, how, how they expand on those ideas. And they, they then set all the study subjects in front of computers about 17 inches away and showed them a bunch of images and asked them what they saw 
and they used very sophisticated eye tracking software to see where they looked. It turned out that the people who ranked highly in creativity actually physically saw more things on the screen and spent more time looking in different areas than did the people who had either rigid worldviews or like sort of worldviews that didn't connect. Uh, let me just let's say rigid worldviews. Now, what is this telling us? It's telling us the creators allow themselves a broad perspective internally, but they also can physically see more material. Why is that so vital? Well, you can only create based on the material you have running around in your head. Someone like Dylan sees a lot, allows themselves to see a lot, and then can draw on that when they create. Yeah, it's fascinating talking about this. I think what you're suggesting, Matt, but tell me if I'm wrong, if I'm putting words into your mouth, is that to be a, a truly great artist, which I think you and I both would agree Dylan is, perhaps the greatest artist in American history in any field, uh, certainly in the creative fields, um, you have to sacrifice. There's a biblical element to it. You have to sacrifice your sense of self. You have to give yourself up. Yes. Um, it, it's highly biblical, uh, which is why he's such an elusive character. When you go to a concert, he won't he won't engage with the audience. The end of the book, you also refer to Bruce Springsteen. You thank him as a source of inspiring your thoughts on inspiration. People used to think of Springsteen as the next Dylan, but he's actually the anti-Dylan, I think, in, in two ways. Firstly, because he pours himself into his art, absolutely, but that also undermines him as an artist. He's much more limited than Dylan. Is that fair? Oh man, I'm not going to get into this one. That that this is like uh, I I think I I think this this one. No, but in that whether or not I don't want you to get into who's a greater artist. But my point about the different, you know, people you always used to talk about Springsteen and Dylan in the same sentence. Oh, you know, Springsteen's the next Dylan. But there is a profound difference that Dylan Dylan doesn't consciously overtly, explicitly pour himself into his work. But ironically, I think if you really listen to Dylan, you learn a lot more about him than you do about Springsteen. But anyway, sorry, I, I'm making it well, more complicated. Here, here's, here's, what I, here's what I would say is telling about each of them um, is that they have allowed themselves to explore all kinds of different territory over time and to go where their muse takes them. I, I don't know that you can compare artists in quite that way because the thing is the expression that they find is unique to them. And your taste may find Dylan to be a greater artist, but I don't, I'm struck by something Dylan said uh, in, he was invited to, the the precursor to the ACLU in the late 60s. And they thought he was going to say something very progressive to the audience. And he said, I don't know why I'm here. I don't see left or right. I just see up or down. And I think one of the points I have learned is it's very hard to make certain kinds of judgments. I think he was getting at the idea that art isn't political. 
It's not left or right. I make this point in the book. Art creation, whether art or entrepreneurialism, is not an act of policy. It's not an act of partisanship. It's a visceral act. And in that respect, I'm just going to say Springsteen, Dylan, and a whole bunch of others have channeled that visceral their themselves into what they do, and it takes different forms. You have lots of other references to other artists. You have uh, um, some interesting stuff on Rhiannon Giddens, on Jude uh, Apatow, and you even talk about the uh, San Francisco uh, Golden State Warriors coach Steve Carr. What are the characters like this tell us, uh, Matt, about creativity? Uh, which are your favorite anecdotes about these figures that perhaps we haven't talked about already? Yeah, I mean, like, let's, first of all, I tried to get people across industries because creativity is often seen as art, but I see it as business, art, um, you know, policy, race relations. I have people in there talking about that issue, but let's take Kerr for a second. Um, He has had as much success as anybody running a sports franchise. I think he has eight NBA championships, five as a coach and I mean, five as a player, three as a coach. He is a really interesting person to talk to in that he is exceedingly open. This is, you know, a, a, a jock culture can be rigid. It can be macho. It can be obnoxious. There's a self-effacing quality to Kerr. Um, I spent a few, a uh, few times talking to him and he, and there's this story about him that really captures a facet of creativity I found interesting. So this is a season some years ago uh, when it was Kerr's first coaching season of the Warriors, and they'd won a lot of games. Simply put, in the NBA, if your team wins 50 games, you've had a great season. Their team won 69. They wind up in the finals of the NBA championship, and they're having this great season, and they're behind – to the Cleveland Cavaliers who had a guy named LeBron James and Steve, they're behind two games to one first one to four wins the world championship or world championship, the U S championship, the NBA championship. And he's got to figure out a solution to LeBron James. It happened that a video, a guy in the video room of the warriors. So not a big coach, not a big assistant coach notices that in some games where the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James have been beaten, that there's a particular defensive strategy that's been used. And this strategy is sort of anathema to what the Warriors had done all season to win 69 games. And he sends the idea to an assistant coach in the middle of the night. The assistant coach sends it to Kerr. And Kerr, in the middle of the NBA championships, rejiggers his lineup. And they go on to win the NBA championship. And when asked about it in front of the cameras, great idea, Coach Kerr. He goes, that that wasn't me. That was this video guy. Now, why is this a telling story? First of all, Kerr was open enough to to adopt an idea that would win uh, an NBA championship. He was open enough to credit someone else. He could hear ideas that weren't so egocentric that they were only his. Am I am I coming across there, Andrew? You mean uh, you're 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 giving up the credit for your ideas to Steve Kerr? <laughs> yes, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm very well done. Um, I'm glad this is not my marriage. 
No, I'm 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 saying yes, you are it requires a degree of, of 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 confidence. And again, that sense that Kerr seems to have of recognizing that you live in a world bigger than yourself and that stuff happens and that you can't control the world. We began with Steve Kotler um, and his thoughts on post-human future. Kotler is a big, I think, um, fan of psychedelics, of altered states of consciousness. You wrote something interesting last year um, on science in the Times. Science doesn't support the idea that marijuana aids athletes' performance. What about drugs and creativity? Yeah, um, I looked. I looked. I looked at the idea, and I even interviewed Carlos Santana about it. I um, mean, who, who, who? Not yeah. that he knows anything about drugs, right? No, he has. He he's never. <laughs> I had him take a test before the interview. He was only on nine. No, that that is not true. Um, but I, I asked him about it, and then I looked at the science, and they, believe it or not, they were consistent. So this is what Santana said to me. He said, sometimes when I would get high, it would give me a portal to flow. But he said, interestingly enough, what was actually more effective for me was meditation. And the problem is it just took a lot of discipline. But I would get more naturally to that place meditating. The science, and I want to go to that in a second, but the science will show that drugs on the whole do not get you to creativity any better than not using drugs. And that's the sum of the science on that subject. It's worth checking out that section of the book if you believe that. But I want to hit at the point that Santana made about meditation because this is another area of science I get into. The value of meditating or mind wandering, and I'm not saying those are the same thing, is they relax the mind enough to allow subconscious ideas to bubble up. And I think sometimes people feel that using drugs will get their, their analytical brains out of the way, but there are more natural ways to do that thing. Finally, I know you got to run. You, you, I think you got a New York Times meeting. Might even be with this man, uh, Joe Kahn. The headlines today is that he's the new executive editor of the New York Times. I never met the guy. I don't actually know anything about his work. But judging from this photo, he doesn't look very creative. What about journalism, um, <laughs> Matt? D d where, where's the creativity in journalism? Well, I'm not suggesting you you criticize your new boss, Joe Kahn. He's only been at the job, I think, a day. Well, look, here's 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 my thoughts on journalism, and this is this is uh we could go on forever. Uh I think it's been forced to get more creative in how it tells stories because um we are really battling for attention. Yeah. And in the old days, we would stand uh, in a in an ivory tower and put out the newspaper and that was the only source of information and we could be pretty darn dry. I used to joke when uh, when the New York Times first put color in it, um, I said uh, don't worry don't 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 worry the the writing will remain dry and lifeless. Um, but I think that's changed and I think we've become better storytellers. Um, my whole job at the Times now is to create long projects over many months. Over the last year, I've done nothing but learn about adolescents and their mental health issues. And starting this Sunday will be the launch of a series on that. These are very long stories, 
that you might have never seen in the New York Times in the past because they're narrative they're narrative based at their core. Well, I hope we're going to get a book out of that. Um, certainly, uh, your new book, Matt Richtel, uh, Inspired Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul, is a, 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 a classically Richtelian story, uh, bringing together art, creativity, lots of wonderful anecdotes, all written with the beautiful craft of a New York Times journalist. Congratulations, Matt, on that. I don't know if it was you or your wife who wrote the book, but someone did a good job. Um, what else should people be reading, Matt, in uh, in uh, April 2022, in addition to your new book, Creativity? Well, I love that you asked this question, and it so happens that I remain really fascinated by the opiate issue. Mm. Um, you wrote that your last book was, was on immunology. You know, that was more on immunology. Um, I mean, they can read that one, which Bill Gates did name one of yeah, his five best of the summer. Me, a guy named Obama. You know, just the regular folk. Um, but uh, um, really, um, two books recently that really have stuck with me on trying to explain and underscore this opiate issue. One is a piece of fiction called Cherry by Nico Walker, written in prison when he was in prison, came back from Iraq, got addicted, turned to crime. Mm. A beautiful piece of Spartan writing. Um, he nails it. It's like noir, but it's fiction drawn from his life. I have to get him on the show. I didn't know that book. It oh, sounds very it's, good. It's terrific. Beth Macy wrote a book called Dope Sick, which was just made into uh, a show, I believe, on Hulu. I haven't seen the show, but the book is a wonderful explanation that marries um, narrative with the science and policy behind what happened. It's the book I wished I would have written if I was going to take on this subject. And in fact, I looked her up and called her afterwards and said, Beth, wow, uh, Dope Sick by Beth Macy, true story. We'll have to get Beth on the show too. And finally, Mac Rittell, uh, the author of Inspired Understanding Creativity. Matt, uh, who runs the world these days? Who's in charge in late April 2022? <clears throat> My daughter. <laughs> 